Good morning. And what a good morning it is. Let's begin with prayer. Your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, put those words in our hearts, in our minds. Let us be reminded of them this morning as we consider the great saving acts of your love, what you did for us, that we might know you and live with you and have joy. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. In his recent film, Silence, filmmaker Martin Scorsese tells the story of two Portuguese missionaries to Japan in the 1600s. These missionaries are young and idealistic. They have heard rumors back in Portugal that their mentor has renounced the faith in Japan because of intense persecution there, but they cannot believe it. And so it becomes their mission to go and to find their mentor and dispute this terrible rumor. When the two missionaries arrive in Japan, they are greeted by some Japanese Christians who are worshiping in secret for fear of persecution. They begin to pastor these Christians in this one particular village and then move on to other villages as well, but their presence in Japan gets the attention of the authorities. And soon some of their flock are caught and put to death before them because their flock would not renounce the faith by stepping on an image of Christ. The film follows one of the particular priests, Father Rodriguez. He is eventually caught, and they begin to put intense pressure on him to renounce his faith because they believe if if he renounces his faith, then all of the other peasants will do the same. And so they load up the pressure, and in particular, they do this by, by causing him to watch those that he loves die, to suffer for the faith. He sees Other Christians die in front of him. He even sees his own brother missionary die. As the film progresses, we watch the idealism of this young pastor slowly unravel. And he wrestles with the silence of God in the face of human suffering. One of his lowest points while he is in prison He says these words to God. He's personalizing Jesus' cry from the cross. Why have you forsaken me? I was your son. Your son was going to the cross. You were silent even to him. Your silent, cold son. No, no, ludicrous, ludicrous, stupid, stupid. And that's how Father Rodriguez finishes his prayer. And then he actually stops praying. And he changes over to the third person, and he concludes, he's not going to answer. He's not going to answer. It's a very human experience to cry out to the heavens and to receive no answer. How many martyrs down through the centuries have cried out to God for deliverance, but were not delivered from persecution and from physical death, even just in the past week? How much has that happened? How many people suffering in the aftermath of some horrific event have cried to the heavens, why God, why would you let this happen, but heard only silence? And all of us, 
probably in much smaller ways, have certainly prayed prayers that received no answer that we knew of. We too know the silence of God. This week we have been reflecting on Jesus and what He suffered leading up to and during His crucifixion. Though the physical pain that He would have had on the cross and leading up to the cross was excruciating. And the psychological effect of all of the mocking crowds was savage and degrading. These were not actually the worst things that Jesus suffered. The burden that crushed him on the garden was the weight of the sin of the world and the judgment that the Father was pouring out against that sin. And then later as he hung on the cross and God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus experienced some type of forsakenness by the Father that we can't even imagine. In both of these experiences, garden and cross, our Lord cried out to the heavens, but the heavens did not answer. Jesus encountered the silence of God. No voice came from the heavens as it had in his baptism and the transfiguration saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. No voice came because in a real and terrifying way, our Lord was forsaken. He was cursed. By Friday evening, our Lord's dead body was taken down from the cross. A man named Joseph, along with another man named Nicodemus, took the body and they placed it in a tomb. And there with them were some women, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, who sat and watched as they sealed that tomb. And then it was the Sabbath. People went home to rest Saturday. Silent, cold Saturday. The light of the world extinguished, it seemed. All his miracles cut short. His teaching about the kingdom silenced. His forgiving love locked up in a tomb. And still no answer from heaven. But then Sunday morning dawned. The Sabbath was over. It was the first day of a new week, which turned out to be the first day of a new world and of a new creation. Because God was breaking the silence. Heaven was giving its answer not only to Jesus, but to all who suffer. To all of creation, God was giving his most definite, complete, and glorious answer. Matthew is the storyteller for this morning, if you'd like to follow along. He's obviously not the only one who records the great resurrection story. The other ones do as well, Mark and Luke and John, and they tell uh, slightly different stories. And sometimes that troubles Christians and give ammunition to unenlightened skeptics as if they think, well, the stories are different, therefore it must not be true. On the contrary, if they had gotten together and concocted a story, which is what sometimes people say, there's no way they would have been so different. They would have made them agree if they were smart. But they don't agree. Why? Because it's being told from the perspective of people who saw it, who were there. It gives evidence that this actually happened, my friends. So Matthew, he tells us that there were two Marys, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, who went to the tomb early on Sunday. We know from Mark's gospel they were going 
with spices to anoint Jesus' body. Well, as they drew near, there was an earthquake. It was the second earthquake in three days. There had also been an earthquake after Jesus had died on the cross. Creation itself was responding to the death and to the resurrection of its Lord. Well, perhaps the source of the earthquake in this case was an angel of the Lord that had descended from heaven, rolled back the stone, and was sitting on it. Descended from heaven. Mark those words. Because the heavens are again opening, God is breaking the silence. Before we're told more about the women and how they responded to this great scene, we're first told about the guards. Matthew tells us that they saw the angel and overcame with fear. They became like dead men. Those assigned to make sure the dead man stayed the dead man instead became like dead men because the dead man was no longer the dead man because he was alive, amen? A great reversal is taking place. And then in verse 5, the angel turns his attention to the women. And he assures them not to be afraid because they're standing in the presence of this blazing white angel with bodies of Roman soldiers strewn around. I mean, they would have been afraid, I would imagine. But he says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And then he says to them these words, he is not here. He is not here. I want you to feel the impact of these words because they're standing in a graveyard. They're standing in a place of decay and mourning and expecting to find Jesus there because that's how the human story goes, right? We live a life, perhaps it's a good and glorious life, it was for Jesus, but then we die and we go to a place of death and rotting and decay and our loved ones mourn for us. That's the human story. But the angel says, yes, that story is being changed, do you see? Because he's not here. Jesus, the one you seek, is not in this place of death, decay, and mourning. He, he was here, but he's no longer here because the graveyard story has changed. It's the first day of a new week, of a new world, of a new story. And then the angel announces those great Easter words. We've said them this morning. For the first time, he says, the mighty act of God that has broken the silence. He has risen. He has risen. That's why he's not here. Don't come to the conclusion that disciples stole his body or that somebody whisked his body away or stole it in some way. No, he's not here because he's risen. He's gone through death, through graveyard, through old creation into a new life. Jesus didn't come back from the dead, friends. He was resurrected. Lazarus came back from the dead. A wonderful thing, to be sure. A taste of what was to come. But Lazarus would die again. Jesus has gone through death into a new quality of life, into a new type of body. He is, we're told, the first fruits of what all of us will experience if we have placed our trust in Christ. Verse 6, the angel reminds the women that Jesus said this was going to happen. He told the disciples on multiple occasions that he would be crucified and that he would be raised again. Even the chief priest knew he had said it. That's why he put the guards at the tomb. It's funny how we can hear something over and over but not really believe it. Every week we confess that we look for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. 
But I wonder if when that happens, and our bodies are resurrected and new and glorious like Jesus, and we're saturated in the life of the world to come, if we won't be surprised, shocked, in disbelief by how real it all is. I mean, we said we believed it, we looked forward to it, but we had no idea of how real it would be. And I can imagine in that day, Jesus standing there with a big smile and his resurrected, shining face saying, I told you so. I told you this was going to happen. The promises of God, as unlikely as they seem, as unreal as they seem, can be trusted. You can build your life upon them. In fact, they're the only thing upon which you can build your life in this changing world. The angel then gives an invitation and an instruction to the women. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. Come, then go. Come and see, then go and tell. It's the very heart of the Christian life. It's built into the resurrection. We come and see that Jesus has been raised, and then we go and tell the wonderful news. We call that worship and mission. We encounter the risen Christ in worship. Then we go out into the world in mission, announcing that he is alive. But as we do that, we have a promise that he goes before us. Yes, he goes with us, but he goes before us wherever it be that he calls us to go. Galilee, uptown Charlotte, the ends of the earth. He will be there. Matthew doesn't actually say a lot more about resurrection. Unlike John or Luke, who have some other uh, really powerful stories after the resurrection, Matthew essentially tells it one or two quick stories, and then he goes straight to the Great Commission, where he sends the disciples into the world to make other disciples. Resurrection compels us into mission. Come and see, then go and tell. And so the women depart the tomb. And as they leave, they leave behind the graveyard story. And they run forward into this new day, into this new world, with a new mission. But along the way, who do they meet? But Jesus himself. Jesus greets them warmly, and they respond by grabbing hold of his feet and worshiping him. He is resurrected, he is new, but he is not a ghost. He is still a body, and he can be touched by these women. And notice that Jesus doesn't stop them from worshiping him. Only two other times does someone worship Jesus in Matthew. The Magi from the East in chapter 2. There's a nice bookends going on of worship of Christ. And then once in the middle in Matthew chapter 14 when the disciples are awestruck after he's walked on water. You see, these were Jews. They were not allowed to give worship to anyone but the holy God, Yahweh. And though their theology is not yet worked out about the divinity of Jesus, it would take some hundred years before that would happen, they recognize at some level that worship is the only correct response. So they worship him. And Jesus reassures them not to be afraid. And then he repeats his instructions to go and tell his disciples that he will go to Galilee where Jesus will meet them. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was God breaking the silence. It was heaven's definitive answer for Jesus and for all of creation. I think for Jesus personally, 
The resurrection was God's answer to Gethsemane and to the cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The resurrection was the father answering the cries of his son, but not keeping him from the suffering, from the curse, but bringing him through that to the other side, to ultimate victory. I pointed out that there was no voice from heaven in the garden or on the cross that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There was no voice because the resurrection was God's answer. It spoke more powerfully than the words could have. It was God's way to say to his son, you are my beloved. And I couldn't be any more pleased with you, not in spite of your suffering, but because of it. But the resurrection wasn't just God's answer to Jesus. It was also God's answer to the world. It was a public thing. It was witnessed publicly and proclaimed publicly. The resurrection was God's seal of approval on His Son and everything His Son had said and done, including the cross. I'm going to say that again. You want to write this one down. This is the big takeaway for the morning. The resurrection was God's seal of approval on His Son and on everything his son had said and done, including and especially the cross. You see, in the resurrection, the father validated Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. The Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling council a few days earlier, had said Jesus was not the Messiah, and he deserved death. The father overruled them and says he is the Messiah, and he raised him to life. Jesus was vindicated in his claim to be the Messiah. You want the theological undergirding of it, switch over to Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And what does he quote from but Psalm 16, which indicates that David foresaw that the Messiah would be resurrected, that he would not be abandoned to death to Hades, but would be raised up. So as Peter and the other apostles are, are putting the story together, the resurrection is proof that Jesus was the Messiah, God's chosen king. So it validates his claim to be the Messiah. It also validates everything that he said and did, all of his miracle and all of his teaching, all of those crazy parables that he taught, all of those teachings of this is what the kingdom of like, all of those things where he said this is what the Father is like. I'm showing you what the Father is like. In the resurrection, the Father is saying, he's right. That's what I'm like. Listen to him. But the most significant thing of all that the resurrection does is it validates the cross. It's God's way of saying, yes, I accept this sacrifice my son has made for the sin of the world. We cannot separate the cross and the resurrection. They are held together. The cross was the sacrifice for sin. It was the victory over the powers over every type of evil. But the resurrection validates and vindicates what Jesus did on the cross are you following? Without the resurrection, we're told in the scriptures, we'd still be in our sins. The American Puritan Jonathan Edwards put it like this. For if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Now the resurrection is God declaring his satisfaction. He thereby declared it was enough. Christ was thereby released from his work. There is in me on Easter Sunday a desire to say, finally, 
Holy Week is done. Lent is over. Let's be done with all of that stuff. It was so heavy. It was suffering and death and minor keys being played. And let's celebrate. (laughs) We sometimes think like that, that the resurrection negates or it nullifies the ugliness of the cross. We think that, well, the cross was the defeat. The resurrection was the victory. We imagine that resurrection overturns what happened on the cross in some way. And from a human perspective, it does look like this. We see death, and then we see life. We see evil, then we see God's power overcoming that evil. There is truth in that. But from God's perspective, the resurrection validates what was done on the cross. It glorifies what was done on the cross. And if you want proof of this, it's right here, and we'll see it one day, friends, with our own eyes. It's right here. Jesus didn't get rid of the scars. In his resurrected body, his new and glorious body, didn't get rid of the scars, for they are his glory. In heavenly worship, John sees the picture. He says, I see a lamb as though slain. Right at the center of our worship for eternity is the slain lamb. This has huge implications for us, because if resurrection validates the cross, then it means that we don't get to throw off Lent and Good Friday but rather those become the pattern for our lives because we are a cruciform people. Jesus, among the many things that he said and was now validated, said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now Lent is over, so go eat your donuts. That's okay. We can feast again. We should feast. It is Easter. We'll move into Pentecost from here. Let us feast. But that deeper meaning of giving our lives away and suffering love, that is now our story. That story has been validated for all of us as the people of God. But what that actually looks like in our lives, in our world, can be quite daunting. Because this Easter, with all the joys, with all the the Easter lilies and the flowers, it will give way to Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And I know that a lot of us struggle. Little things, big things. And our world is in a terrible place of suffering right now. Civil war goes on in Syria, other places in the world. Christians dying in Egypt on Palm Sunday, a deep division, hostility in our own country. Living a cruciform life in this broken world is full of suffering. And sometimes, sometimes that suffering just feels relentless, like it won't let up, like wave after wave of bad news keeps knocking us down. And as that happens, even to people who know the resurrection, it feels like God is silent, like he's not going to answer. And this is where resurrection becomes so very practical. It is the reminder that God is not silent. We can relate to Father Rodriguez. It's a very human experience saying he's not going to answer. He's not going to answer. But in many ways, Scorsese's film is a reflection on the cross without the power of the resurrection because God has answered. He's broken the silence through the resurrection of his son and he will do it for us again at the end of time. I want to let St. Paul have the last word for us this morning. Some weeks ago, I was in a place of just feeling discouraged, feeling worn out, and the Lord brought this uh, verse to mind. In 1 Corinthians 15, after writing 
the most beautiful treatise on the resurrection, Christ and ours and all that it means in the new body. Go home and read it today, 1 Corinthians 15. just want to read the uh, conclusion that Paul has. This is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then this, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved sisters and brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Your steadfast love endures forever. And Father, how powerfully you have put that on display through your cross and through your resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Fill us now with all spiritual hope and strength that we might go and tell what we have seen of the risen Lord. We bless you, we worship you, we praise you. We ask these prayers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.